Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. We finally made it here to the last chapter here in this amazing little book. We'll take the first seven verses. A couple of quick announcements for you for our National Day of Prayer service, which at least the evening service, we're going to have the band Doxa with us, so they will be here. They're normally found down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, doing lift on Monday, Monday night, so... Uh, come on out Thursday, that'll be a great time. Also let you know if you're traveling to Israel with us here in a couple of weeks, uh, our final meeting, 2.30 today, uh, in the overflow room. Looking forward to what the Lord's going to be doing as we uh, give the last few little instructions before we hop on a plane and travel you know, 8,000 or so miles away uh, to the land of Israel. Philippians 4, we'll pick up in verse 1. And it begins again with that word, therefore, so we always want to look back and see why it's being said, what's being said. And and of course, here in this amazing little book, you find that Paul has laid out these incredible pieces of doctrine, followed by our duty to engage in that doctrine. And now he's going to begin to talk about something that I think uh, for all of us ends up uh, in in one of those places where we, we are tested. Anybody here prone to worry? Anybody in the congregation prone to worry occasionally? That's probably most of us, amen? There there are times in our lives where we are prone to worry. And so Paul is going to speak to that issue and really is going to speak to it in a way that's very beneficial for us and show us really the worthlessness of our worry. And so before we dig into the word, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your incredible word. Lord, the power that it has to transform and change us. And we would ask uh, that you would move by your spirit in this place, instructing us, Lord, encouraging us, strengthening us, building us up in that faith that we have because of you, Jesus. And so, Lord, take your word now and impart it to us as truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. He's facing his own death. Uh, He's nowhere near the church in Philippi in modern-day Turkey. He's in Rome, and so he is not with them. And he says, my joy and my crown. Uh, He had planted this church. He's responsible for its existence in that sense. It's a work of the Lord. Uh, But he's looking forward to that day when he gets to heaven and he sees the fruit of what has been done through his life. And so he's talking about the joy of that. And, and you'll have that opportunity in your own life, very, very often in your own family. Uh, it's quite frequent that we as parents get an opportunity to share the love that we have for Jesus with our children, and we see them come to faith. And so you can see this picture of a family. He says, my beloved and long for family, in essence, my joy. It, it was his pleasure, it was his joy uh, to see them as, as a fruit of the ministry that he had been engaged in while he was with them there in Philippi. And he tells them then to stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Then he goes on to pick up a little problem group of people. And, you know, I always remind people, ministry would be really easy if there were no people involved. (laughs) You just take people out of it, it becomes quite simple. If you're just ministering to pews and stages and instruments, uh, you're you're not going to have a whole lot of, they don't talk back much. They don't have differing opinions. Very few things will cause you deep problem areas uh, if they're not human-related. And so he says, I implore you, Eodia, and I implore you, Sintaichi, to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And he draws them back to what has been the context of his instruction to us. And remember, we're to have that heavenly mind, that mind that's set on heaven, the mind that keeps things in focus. Because if we get our eyes off of this earth, we can see more clearly because it is the earth that is the problem. It's our life that we live here that presents us with those things that we're normally concerned with, that we would be overly concerned with at times, and very often where we stumble in our faith and trust in the Lord. He says, I urge you also, true companion. And he uses a name there. We'll enlighten that in a moment. Help these women who've labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And so he, he kind of presents a family problem in a general sense. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't say, hey, this lady's thinking this and this lady's thinking that and there's an issue between them. He just simply says there's something that's divided them. See to it if you can't be used to reconcile them. And then he begins to unfold this for us, what really is the, is the context of our message for this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Notice he doesn't say, hey, problems don't matter. Uh, everything in life is just, you know, it's not worth concerning yourself with. He, he's saying rejoice in the Lord. God has it under control. There, there's a rejoicing that occurs in the life of every believer because God is God. Amen? He's not limited like we are. He, he doesn't, he isn't limited in resources. He's not lim- limited in mental ability. He's not limited in knowledge. He can be everywhere at once. He is in no way, shape, or form limited, and so... Paul reminds them, rejoice in the Lord. Again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. How much would our world be transformed if every Christian, every person who knew and understood these words, was actually gentle in all ways? How would your life be transformed if you were constantly seeking to be as gentle as you possibly can? Uh, We're in the midst of that lovely thing we call a presidential election cycle. Uh, Gentleness, it needs to be a prerequisite course for all politicians. It's like pull your foot out of your mouth, think about what you're going to say, and say it in as kind a way as you possibly can, because the discourse as we now see it is accomplishing pretty much zero, amen? Gentleness known to all men. Why? Why? Because the Lord is at hand. And he's closer to being here than he's ever been before with us today. And then finally he says, be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. Don't be pulled apart by anything. And really there's an inference there. You could be. There's plenty of things to think about. Plenty of things to concern your mind with. But don't. But instead, you could look at it this way. But rather, in everything. How many things? In everything. So the instruction here is exactly the same instruction that that we got from Jesus. And that instruction from Jesus was, don't worry about anything. Paul's echoing that same exact instruction to us. Don't worry about anything but in everything and by prayer and through supplication with thanksgiving. Please understand the original context here. There are two things that are spoken, prayer and supplication. They're different kinds of the same thing. It's you talking to God. 
One is a general request. The other is something that is deeply concerning your heart. It's something that that is so overwhelmingly who you are that you have to tell God a little bit extra about that thing. So your prayer and your supplication, those things that are agonizingly you. But he says, do it this way. Before you ever see the result, you see, he says thanksgiving in in the third place. But what he really means is, because he uses this transitional word with, he's saying, as you make these things, have your thanksgiving already there. In other words, pray with thanksgiving already in your heart. Supplicate with thanksgiving already in your heart and in your mind. Because God delights to give good things to his children. Amen? He is near to those who are his. He will not cast out those who are his. You you see, he's really giving us this picture. Look, I love you. I'm concerned for you. I'm more concerned for you than you are for yourself. So when you talk to me, speak to me with thanksgiving already in the forefront. Because I've got a good plan. My thoughts towards you are good. Just as Jeremiah 29, 11 reminds us, they're a future, they're a hope. They're not evil. So when you pray, pray with thanksgiving already in the mix before you ever see God's answer. Let your request. Can I remind you that you're not supposed to tell God what to do? I know none of you would actually ever do that, but I have been known at times to kind of, you know, God, this is what I want you to do, and if you do it, you're right. We're to make our request known to God. That means we understand that he knows best, and however he answers it, with thanksgiving as a presupposition, we say to him, Lord, here's my request. I'm asking for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am not asking for you to just simply agree with me. Make your request known to God. And then the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And the the point is this. In a human sense, in your mental capacity, you have some capacity to understand things. Your mind, your emotions working together to bring you to some conclusion about everything. You have some capacity to do that. This type of prayer life brings you to a new place. It gives you peace, and that peace comes from God. And that peace is greater than your simple capacity to simply understand. To take tidbits, pieces, and parts and put them together, assemble them some way, and logically come to a conclusion. It's greater than, notice what it says, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, any ability that you might have to gather together all of the things that are this issue that you might be prone to be anxious about, you see, God's peace is greater than that. And so he says, that surpassing understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. I don't know how many of you, I, you know, I like some of the older Disney movies. One of them is not horribly old, but you remember The Lion King? Yeah, you remember the phrase Hakuna Matata? Don't worry, be happy. We're supposed to be like that as Christians. Now, I'm not asking you to look like a little warthog or a marakeet. 
But you, you are supposed to have that same type of mentality. It's actually a Swahili phrase, and it, and it simply means there are no worries here. Hakuna Matata. There are no worries here. There aren't any worries that are worth worrying about if you're a child of God. There are things that you need to concern yourself with. Because when you get up, you know, if you, if you get on the freeway and you're not concerned with which lane you're in, bad things will happen, right? So we're not talking about you tucking your brain in a box and leaving it at home and going out and, well, whatever, Lord. But we are talking about those things that we would call anxious thought or worry. And what is that? Can I tell you something you're not going to want to hear? Very often worrying is a lack of faith and trust in God. We don't leave God God. (laughs) We become God. And so our worry is actually based on our capacity to handle our own things. And so what happens is you take all of that stress, that concern that you have, and you bear it yourself in your own abilities, your own thought processes, your own provision, the things that you might be able to do about it. And because the sum and total of the problem versus your resources to accomplish something to affect the problem equals a negative number, you go, oh no, I'm in trouble. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, we need to worry about nothing. We need to have that faith and trust that when we put something in God's to-do box, we don't use those much anymore, but I remember it very frequently and often in business, I used to have a stack of, you know, the, the file folder trays on the side of my desk, and I still have a couple of them here. I use them mainly to store stuff in now, because we use everything electronically, but, but you used to take that folder out, and it would be maybe a project or something you're working on, and, and in it would contain all of the bits and pieces and parts and material or things that you would normally look at and say, I need all these things to accomplish this task. Let me give you a secret about God. When you have prayed about everything, you fold up that folder, you put it in his to-do box, and you leave it there. And you let him give you the results. You see, very often we pull the folder back out and we start to mull it over, don't we? We take out all the people, oh, that's terrible. You you see, the word anxious that's being used here, literally in the Greek language, means to be pulled apart in different directions. We would use the term shredded, actually, to just rip something apart every direction you could possibly tear it apart. The English word that is most often used in translating this word actually isn't used that way at all. It's to strangle. So it's to be pulled apart and strangled. Isn't that what worry does? It tears us apart and it strangles us. It chokes the joy of the Lord right out of our lives. We worry, we concern ourselves with these things. You see, worry can strangle you. Matter of fact, the stress that comes from it, uh, we have a number of doctors probably in the room right now, here in the sanctuary. And you talk to them, one of the leading causes of heart disease is stress and worry. Digestive system can be affected by worry. Back pain, headaches, it's amazing what just stress will do in our lives. 
I often wonder if we eliminated stress, how many people actually need that blood pressure medication that most of us are taking. You know, it used to be you got to be, you know, 60, 70 years old, maybe you took a little bit of blood pressure medication, now you're 12. Like, well, you better go get some blood pressure medication. I mean, life's hard. A lot of it for Christians, we're not trusting God. We're concerning ourselves with things we can't do a thing about. And Jesus, when he speaks to this issue there in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, how many of you can add even a, a cubit to your... How, how can you get taller by worrying? What's going to happen to you by worry? Well, it's going to shorten your life is what it's going to do. Many of us, I'm sure, have gotten to this place to where we're just overly concerned with things that we cannot change. When you look at worry, it really has two component parts. One is wrong thinking. It's your mind. It's how you process the facts. And the second one is wrong feeling. That involves your heart. In other words, your emotions. You, You end up separating out. Isn't it weird when you start to worry how you take and you exaggerate the negative facts, right? Isn't that what we do? Well, I'm going to die. You know, my house is going to fall apart. We, we begin to say, in essence, with the facts, we say, these facts overwhelm these facts. And then you begin to act on these negative facts with also negative emotion. Until you get totally stressed out. And what Jesus said was, look, you're not going to change the situation by doing that. Beyond actually make it a little more difficult for you to deal with at the very, very least. And so Paul gives us some cures for worry. And I would begin to say this, look, we we need to stop majoring in minor things. Amen? Isn't it weird how little things get into your mind or into your thought processes, your emotions, and all of a sudden you just like you cling to them, you gravitate towards them? And Paul's saying, look, worry about nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Because realistically, worry is an inside job, isn't it? It it comes from within. Other people cannot cause you to worry. They can give you facts and figures and emotions that you can concern yourself with that can turn into worry, but they can't make you worry. You do the worrying on your own. You're responsible for that part. And so we need to recognize where that worry comes from. It's from within us. In this case, we have a couple of feuding friends. Can I tell you that there's a lot of things in the church that go on that, you know, they don't happen perfectly. I know that's a shocker to everyone. But people sometimes don't, you know, love on each other the way they should. And that was the case here in this particular church. And these two ladies, while we do not know what they were arguing over or what was dividing them, what had caused a problem between the two, we do know this that the Apostle Paul had heard about it while he's in prison. So it must have been a fairly big deal. And it was tearing the church apart. And yet there wasn't a specific sin that he could call out. He was, you know, it wasn't like he could say, you know, Yodi, you really have to stop lying about your sister. He doesn't do that. It's a very general thing that's said here. And I think it's, it's for our benefit and for our blessing. Because we can let things 
get in between us as the body of Christ that ultimately becomes so destructive because people start to gain armies against one another. And I've watched it happen. Paul and Apollos, you, you had that situation with them. So they go, well, I'm for Paul. Well, I'm for Apollos. No, we're supposed to all be for Jesus. Amen? And so if something comes between you and you lose that picture, if that heavenly mind is no longer in you, then, then you've kind of stepped over that place that we should be as the body of Christ. And he says, look, I plead with you ladies. Agree with each other in the Lord. Put it aside. Don't let those grudges, those hard feelings. You know, sometimes hard feelings become like the pillars in the sanctuary here. They're part of the architecture of the church. You thought, well, you know, that person said something bad about me. And you go to ask them, well, when did it happen? Well, 23 years ago. And I haven't forgotten it. And as the body of Christ, we're supposed to not keep lists at all. Amen. Love keeps no record of wrong. Amen? You, you see what happens is you start storing all that stuff up, and you get you a nice chunky list, and you pull every time you see that person in your head, you start to worry because you might actually have to talk to them. And you see them coming down the hallway, and here, the hallway's a long ways. I mean, you could be thinking for five minutes going to children's ministry. Like, here she comes. I remember when she said this. I remember when she said that. And all of a sudden you're worrying about your response and what you're going to do and your kids might bump into each other and your husbands play golf together or whatever and all of a sudden it's just like, ah! And worry sets in. And so he says in verse 3, look, I, I urge you, true companion. The word companion there is a neat word. It's actually syzygous. And it actually means yoke fellow. And so it's someone who's yoked together. In other words, they're in ministry together. And whether he's using this man's name or it's a play on words, the result's the same. He says, look, you who's tied into this mess, why don't you help these ladies? You who know them, why don't you step into the fray? Why don't you be used of the Lord? Family of God, can I, can I tell you something? As a Christian, you need to not be afraid to step in the middle. And try and see brothers and sisters reconciled. Because sometimes they just need a holy slap in Jesus. It's like, what are you doing? They, they won't do it. You know, they won't hit themselves. No, I'm not saying hit them. But, but you know what I'm saying. There are times it's just like they get so ingrained in their thought processes and their feelings. And they're wandering around. They're carrying this burden. They're carrying this weight. And they need someone to come along and say, Hey, could I remind you of what Galatians 6.1 says? When you find your brother, your sister in a fault, you who are spiritual, in other words, somebody who's actually walking with Jesus in the right way, you restore that person in the spirit of love. Lest you yourself be tempted in exactly the same way. Can, can I remind you what Matthew 18 tells us to do? Look, if you have aught with your brother, you ought to go to your brother, you ought to go to your sister and get that thing squared away so that you can gain your brother or your sister back. That's what you're supposed to do. And here's what you'll usually hear. Well, you don't know what they said. And they'll cross their arms just like this. You don't know what they said. I mean, they talked about my dog. They slandered my dog. And, and I'm being facetious, of course. But, 
at times it's almost that simple. It's like you're carrying around something that was from 10 years ago. He disrespected my cake recipe or something. You know, it, it, and all of a sudden, everything else that happens between these two people is tainted by this disrespect of a cake recipe. And you kind of have to go, <clears throat> excuse me, go be reconciled to your brother or your sister. Look, we all have issues, amen? Doesn't, if you're in here and you don't have issues... I'll give you some of mine. <laughs> Jesus' name. Just come over. I'll give you a box. You can take them with. We all have issues. we got things where we fail, we stumble. Sometimes we even do the wrong thing knowingly. we got issues. You need to remember that when you're thinking about your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have issues. They have issues. You're a bunch of issues. Step into the middle and say, hey, can we square this away? Because it's nothing like our Lord Jesus, what's going on right now. Let's try and be reconciled one to another. And he uses the context of the book of life. Look at the, here's here's the deal. Think about this for a second. You're going to spend eternity together. So you might want to start living like it now. Amen? Amen? You know, we're, we're wandering around, well, you know, I don't want to be anywhere near that person. You're going to have an eternity to be together. You might want to kind of figure out those things. There's a couple of keys here. They're pretty simple. Rejoice and rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Look at these things as the body of Christ in, in, in light of eternity. They're not exactly huge things. Well, they seem like they're huge things, and they're not inconsequential things as well. They matter. But the Apostle Paul is saying, look, why don't we look at this from an eternal perspective? You see, it is my internal attitudes that affect my external actions. Amen? The things that happen out here are because of what's in here. That's why Jesus said, Store up your treasure in heaven where the moths and the rust can't get to it. And then he goes on to say, look, wherever your treasure is, you know, that, that's where your heart's at. And so if you're treasuring up bitterness and hate and anger and angst towards someone or about something, eventually it's going to show itself because you're going to start serving that treasure. You're going you're to try and protect that treasure. You're going to try and hang on to that bitterness, that anger. That issue. And so he says in verse 5, let your gentleness be applied to the situation. Now most of us, when we're on the other side of the equation, we want people to be gentle with us. Amen? I want appropriate force used in my life. That's what gentleness is. It doesn't mean that you don't address difficult things head on. It means that when you do address address anything, that you do it with appropriate force, recognizing that God loves you, loves that person, loves all of us. And everything he does, he does because of love. So he uses that love in action. We call it gentleness. So it's appropriate. You know, someone attacks your family, comes after your children, appropriate force is to take them out. Amen? That's appropriate in that situation. You're protecting someone who's innocent. 
but that same force is not necessary when you shake hands at the door. Right? That's gentleness. It's like I recognize the situation doesn't call for that kind of force. How often do we, like, we take out the baseball bat of judgment and we're whacking, well, you know, if they were really holy. If you can't stand up to that test, then don't put it on somebody else. And let me tell you something, most of us can't. You may not fail in that area. You may not have that same problem, but you've got issues, you have problems, and chances are that you would not want to be treated any other way than gently faced with your own issues. So treat people with gentleness. Be kind. Be gentle. Be loving. Use appropriate actions and attitudes. He gives us then the antidote for this worry. There's a healthy concern. Healthy concern is good. You need to have some healthy concern. You want to make sure that you're thinking about the right things in the right way. But you have to leave God in control. And prayer combats this. And I would just remind you that that's the way we want to live our lives. When I have an issue with something, instead of acting on it, getting worried about it, when I give it to God and say, God, look, you need to either change them, change me, change the situation, or give me the grace to sustain me in this place that I'm at right now. But very often, all we do is we pray for one side of the equation, don't we? Anybody ever pray like that? I'm probably the only one. Lord, change them. Isn't that, we pray like that, don't we? How often do we look inwardly and go, Lord, change me. If I need to be changed, you change me. You want a secret to a happy marriage? Ask God to change you first and then your spouse. Amen? Ask God to change you. Look, God, I, I, I willingly admit that I might be off base here, so you change me. If I need to be changed, you start with me. He says, pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing. And, and do it properly. Say, God, here's my normal request to you. And, and here, here's an issue. I mean, I know this needs your help. So I'm talking to God really earnestly about this one, and I'm generally saying, look, I'm not quite sure here. There's different kinds of prayer. They're all prayer. They're all communicating with God. That's all prayer is. Sometimes we get so worried about the position we're in that we don't worry about the content. Worry about the content, not the position. You can pray. You should pray while you're driving, in fact. Just don't close your eyes. And definitely do not get on your knees. Doing that thing. Worry about the content. Say, look, God, you know, I, I need to get to work, and that sure looks like a parking lot to me. Could you, could you open the Red Sea of traffic? It's how we do those things. We, we talk to God. Say, God, I can't change this. I, there's nothing I can do about this. But I know you could. So if it's your will, if you want me to finish this Bible study I'm listening to on K-Wave, then you keep me right here in traffic. You see, you, you, you turn it back to where God can work with both sides of the equation. And he says, and then thank God. Petition him, but, but give him the credit for what he's going to do before he ever does it. Can I remind you that there's no request that's too small for God? No request. He is concerned about the things that concern you. So everything that you can think of, he cares about. So let him have those things. 
That's where that peace comes from. When you start to watch God work in the little things, when you start to watch God work in the big things and everything in between, then your trust builds, your faith builds, your hope builds in him, not in you, in him. You see, because realistically, worry and faith, they don't go together very well. And prayer combats that. It gives you that cathartic moment to where you're, you're getting a heart check on yourself. It's like, am I really trusting God with this? And boy, don't we need that. As you talk to God, you, you pray continually. You talk to him about absolutely everything. I've gotten to where I kind of, I keep my, my, you know, we, we have our smartphones. You can pull them out. You can put them on speakerphone. Or maybe you have a Bluetooth in your car. You know, people think you're weird because you're talking to the dashboard of your car. You're driving down the freeway. And you're just like, just going on and on. It's the way it should be with God. You should just have an open line of communication. Just talk to him. He wants to hear from you. Put it on speaker. Leave it wide open. Say, God, I, I, I'm not quite sure, but in this situation, you know, I really could use some help because I've been worrying about this thing, and rather than worry about it, I want you to just simply tell me what it is that I need to do. If there's something I need to do, God, you tell me what that is. We talk to him. And the result, which will illuminate next time, next Sunday, is the protection of peace. The guardian, the garrison, that armor that is the Lord guarding you against thinking wrongly and feeling wrongly, acting incorrectly, and the peace of God which surpasses our understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. You see, true peace isn't found in positive thinking. It's not the absence of conflict. It's none of those things. We think it is. It's amazing how many people think that true peace is the absence of conflict or the absence of negative things. It's not at all. True peace is knowing that God is in control no matter what's going on. That's the guardian that we have. It's like, God, this is total chaos, but I know you're the God that can take care of my chaos. This is really painful, but Lord, you're the God that takes care of my pain. And you only allow as much as is necessary in my life for my good, for my benefit. God allows things into your life. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, amen? Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed from him, amen? Did God remove it? He did not. Jesus still went to the cross. So God allows things in your life that you don't like. You need to ask him for the grace and the peace to see that for the way he sees it. Because he knows what he's going to do with that situation. It's inner peace. It's radical, life-changing peace. And so I pray that you'll be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer, through supplication, with thanksgiving, that you'll make your request known to God, and then you'll have that peace of God that surpasses all of your own human understanding that'll put a guard set up a garrison of his love around your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that you're the God who conquers our worries and our fears, our phobias. And pray, Lord, that as you work in us to will and to do, to accomplish your good pleasure, that, God, we join you by not worrying. Lord, we put the stuff of our lives into that great to-do box, Lord, that one that has no limit. Lord, it's not like the mailbox on our phone. It, It never gets full. You love to hear from your children, and you are concerned about the things that concern us. And so, Father, we pray that you'd keep us from becoming distracted by worry, overcome by worry. I pray if there's someone here this morning, they've just been overcome. God, would you set them free? Would you move in their life, in their heart, their mind, that they'd be restored, Lord, to know that you are the God of the impossible. There is nothing impossible for you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We praise you for your blessings. Pray that you'd instruct us from heaven. Keep our eyes fixed, Lord. Help us with our problem people in our lives. Help us to not be a problem person ourselves. Would you use us for your wonderful plans? Set us free from worry, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.